Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. In the last 24 hours, Lauren Adler and Matt Fiedler over at Brookings say 15 million people will go off the rolls. Do you agree? I don't think it's going to be 15 million people. If you look at the, those who are enrolled in the Medicaid uh, expansion, or a lot of them were actually eligible before Obamacare passed. A lot of them could obtain private coverage, especially if you repeal the Obamacare regula- regulations, which will cause premiums to plummet for the vast majority of people in the exchanges. That is why the bill that uh, Paul Ryan and the Republican leaders in the House have put forward is so inadequate. It does not repeal those regulations. Those regulations are destabilizing the market. They're going to toss 43,000 Tennessee residents out yeah. of their coverage next year, leaving them with nothing. These are people with cancer and expensive conditions. Obamacare is in crisis right now, and they are not repealing the parts that are causing that crisis. Within your note, you take Eastern Tennessee, and folks, what's so important about this is the granularity of Cannon's work. You take <coughs> Eastern Tennessee and you expand it to the nation. The Congressional Budget Office has to do the same thing. Can you explain to me why we have to rush before CBO scores or estimates the cost. Well, what's happening is that the Republican leadership is trying to manipulate its own members. They're trying to get them to commit to a bill before they know how much it costs. Look, the Republican leadership, they have estimates of how much this is going to cost. I've spoken with staffers to the leadership who have said, you know, we've consulted with CBO, we've consulted with OMB, we've consulted with actuaries at at multiple firms. They have numbers, but they're not sharing them. And that tells us that the numbers are not going to look good. Right. The, the, the rank and file are not going to like those numbers. So why are they asking them to commit to the bill before seeing the numbers? It's because they want to they want to rope them in and make it harder for them to uh, uh, to reject this bill after the numbers right. come out. Our Kevin Cirilli spoke with Senator Paul of Kentucky a few days ago. I think he's a libertarian, but he's not a Michael Cannon libertarian. What is the distinction between Senator Paul's outrage and your academic and careful work? Well, I think, for one thing, Senator Paul has to get reelected. Uh, uh, but I... But he and I share a lot of critiques of this law, of this, of this legislation, uh, and, and the biggest one is that it is not repeal. It preserves for the federal government all the powers that Obamacare gave uh, to the federal government over the private health insurance market, including all the provisions that are destabilizing insurance, not just in, the, in eastern Tennessee for those 43,000 residents who are right. going to lose all coverage, but across the country. Right. There are a 1,000 counties with only one carrier left in the Obamacare exchange, and so 3 Michael. million people are subject to losing their insurance right. if just one carrier leaves. Okay, so Michael, you're extremely, extremely critical of this GOP alternative. They must realize that there are a lot of critics out there. What would you do in their shoes to make it a little bit better? 
well, I wouldn't want to make it just a little bit better. It needs to get a lot better. So what I would do is three things. One, push for full repeal, including the uh, uh, regulations that this law doesn't even uh, try to, re or this legislation doesn't even try to repeal. Uh, second, deal with the, w that will cause premiums to fall for the vast majority of people affected. Second, you want to give states the flexibility to spend their Medicaid funds so that they can target those funds for the truly needy, including people with pre-existing conditions who are currently in the, the exchanges and would lose their coverage. So you're taking care of those folks. But the most important thing, perhaps, is that you need to bring down health care prices. This legislation doesn't do that. It takes the Obamacare approach, which is throw more government subsidies at unaffordable care rather than make health care more affordable. And the way you bring health care prices down so that fewer patients are vulnerable is by giving consumers the money that employers and government now control. They'll bring those prices down. The way you do that is by expanding health savings accounts. Okay, what are the chances of, of, of them changing it and doing something that you've just mentioned? There must be people in the Trump administration that are looking at it and that are trying to figure out the best approach and the best way to deal with it. Who does President Trump listen to? Well, what, what's going to make the difference is whether conservatives in the House tell the leadership, we're just not going to vote for this. If they tell the leadership, we're not going to vote for this, then the leadership has to make changes. And a number of House conservatives already went to the White House yesterday. They spoke with President Trump about making changes to this law, moving it more in the direction that I mentioned, in the direction of expanding health savings accounts. Uh, hopefully, they will get rid of right. the tax, the subsidies, the entitlement spending that, that this legislation would retain from Obamacare, the, uh, the, the government subsidies for private health insurance companies, uh, and replace that with uh, right. expanded health savings. Accounts. Michael, help me here with a question that came up three times yesterday. Francine Lacroix is coming to you from London. What's wrong with Francine's medical coverage? I had three people yesterday say to me, why can't we do it like Canada? Why can't we do it like England? Why can't we do it like blah, blah, blah? What's wrong with Francine Lacroix's medical coverage? Oh, all sorts of things. For one thing, it's not very responsive to the patient because the patient is not the one controlling the money. Uh, there are uh, some pretty um, horrific examples of government rationing in those systems. I'm not going to say that no one benefits from those systems. Of course they do, or else these governments would have gotten rid of them. But they do not deliver the sorts of innovations that the United States delivers in terms of new medical technologies, nor the sorts of innovations that really no system delivers in terms of well, driving down the price of health care, making it more convenient and more affordable for everyone. Only markets are able to do that. We see that right. in certain corners of the right. U.S. health care I mean, sector. We don't see it anywhere in Canada or the U.K. I pay taxes. I pay a lot of taxes, but then my insurance is free, Tom, right? It's funding. This is the problem with my health care. It's that you have to fund it. And people have to be willing okay. to accept that you have to pay a certain percentage of your annual income for everyone to be protected. But Francine, help me here. I know it's Mr. Lacroix's birthday, and it's a deeply emotional weekend at the Lacroix House uh, right now. Help Michael Cannon here, Dr. Lacroix. Are you getting okay coverage for your offspring in England, or do you have to fly to Boston or New York to get a pediatric visit uh, with your kids? 
All right, Michael, for the record, we're we're all healthy, Tom, for the moment. So long may that be, and that makes everyone's life a lot easier. But, Michael, this is the point, and Tom has hit it on the head, is that we may have certain concerns about our systems here in Europe. But is it because people, for the fact that you don't want to give free health care to everyone in the U.S., is that because there's a U.S. mentality that you kill what you eat, and so people don't want to pay to look out for their neighbors? Or is it really the concern that Tom was pointing to, that you need specialist help, and that would not be covered if you have basic health care for everyone? The reason I want to get the government out of health care is because I, I want fewer people to fall through the cracks of our health care sector. I want to use innovations <clears throat> to fill in those cracks, to make health care better, to make the price of health care fall so that more people can afford medical care themselves and the rest of us are wealthier. So we're better able to help those who can't help themselves. And in the United States, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, right. I'm a critic of the U.S. health care sector. But one of the things that we do in the United States better than any other nation is we develop new medical technologies, well, new drugs, new treatments. And those help fill in the cracks of not just in our health care sector, but in the U.K. and in Canada and in uh, in all sorts of third world nations. Right. So, so that's an important part of this puzzle, and other nations are not uh, uh, are not stepping up, are not delivering those sorts of innovations. Okay. Joining us now, Willem Bowder, Global Chief Economist uh, at City. Great to have you here in our Bloomberg 1130 uh, studios. Let's start with uh, with your outlook, your fo- uh, forecast for growth and for inflation. We had adjusted forecasts from the OECD at the beginning of the week. We heard from Mario Draghi, the president of the ECB, uh, yesterday as well. Uh, how much adjustment have you made? Where does your forecast stand right well, now I for think, growth um, and for inflation? Our uh, city's official forecast is uh, for 2.1% this year as opposed to one6 last year. I think we're probably going to be... Uh, 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 on, on the upside of that a bit. So in the sort of uh, low to mid twos, which is uh, A, an improvement over last year, and B, of course, uh, significantly faster than potential output growth. So the output gap will be closing. Wherever full employment is, we'll be hitting it. Mario Draghi yesterday saying there is not a, a sense of urgency in monetary policy uh, anymore. What did you make of what he had to say yesterday? Yes, about the data, but just also about the monetary policy uh, environment. Uh, well, he, he uh, had to balance yes. uh, two different uh, <laughs> uh, objectives, right? First, it's clear that with even underlying inflation you know, rising in the euro area now, let alone headline inflation, which already hit 2%, um, it, it becomes very difficult to argue that uh, you know, continued super loose monetary policy uh, makes sense. At the same time, he doesn't want to stop doing QE tomorrow or raise rates the day after tomorrow. So he had to throw a bone uh, to the uh, Teutonics, which was big enough uh, for them uh, to uh, uh, let him get on with doing 60 billion uh, of worth of asset purchases until the end of the year, and probably uh, only slow tapering after that. Can I just interrupt this wonderful conversation? David Gura, if I said throw a bone to the Teutonics (laughs) on air, I would be thrown off. Bloomberg Radio, continue. (laughs) The the elephant in the room yesterday, of course, uh, was politics. Uh, how big an elephant are we looking at here? How long is the, the trunk? How big are the tusks? When, when you look at the French election coming up, before that, of course, the, the Dutch election next week. Yeah, the, the Dutch election, of course, is not systemically important. Something you're not following closely uh, no, at all. The Netherlands sure. uh, 
um, no, uh, wouldn't do anything radical without uh, permission from the big neighbor to the east. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, yes, it clearly um, would uh, would be a, a huge event if uh, the uh, so-called Freedom Party, the Dutch uh, right-wing populist, were to be part of the next government. Mm. They may be the largest party, even that's not clear. They won't get, in all likelihood, uh, even 20% of the vote. The Dutch have a strictly proportional lower house, uh, so uh, no party has ever had a majority. If they were, were the government, it would be part of a coalition. Um, if they're part of a coalition, they won't be able to have a referendum uh, because they'd have to change the referendum law to have a referendum on the EU. So I think it's all going to end up most likely with an other centre-right uh, coalition without the hard hats, without the populist, but uh, more obstructionist in Eurozone decision-making and EU decision-making um, uh, because even the establishment parties right, have taken on the rhetoric and some of the substance of the policies of the populists. How worried are you at this point about the, the commentary we're hearing about fears about the, the integrity of, of, of the, the Eurozone, what might happen here if the election goes a certain way? Uh, in France, we heard from Mario Draghi yesterday that the euro is irrevocable. Um, are you concerned about the, 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 the continued cohesion of, of the European Union? Uh, in the short run, I'm not particularly yeah. uh, worried. Uh, clearly, um, during uh, uh, this year and next, uh, Draghi will still be around as uh, head of uh, throwing of the bones, ECB, right and left. Yeah. Right, he is, no, he, he's going to be around until the 31st of October yes. 2019. So I don't start really worrying uh, until uh, we get to early 2019 and people start talking about his uh, his successor. Now, um, uh, it is true that there could be uh, a much uh, closer mm. uh, disaster if France elected Le Pen. I think still uh, very unlikely, although less unlikely than it was before. Uh, Mr. Fillon first imploded and now is reploding somewhat. And uh, then, of course, Italy, where uh, with the um, breakup of the uh, Democratic Party, the, uh, the leading party of government, um, uh, we are likely to see an election which could result in a majority for anti-Euro, anti-EU parties. Even then, uh, no, remember this, a majority for Le Pen, even Le Pen presidency, does not mean that France leaves the Eurozone or the EU, because not everybody who votes for Le Pen mm -hmm. also wants yeah. to leave the EU. And the same in Italy, although popular opinion is turning well, quite sharply in Italy against EU membership. So I'm most worried about Italy, uh, but the real trouble won't start, I think, until 2019. Right. You know, not that I would have a beverage of my choice at the vault bar at the Waldorf Astoria in Amsterdam, but mm -hmm. it's, it's possibly <laughs> something I'd consider. Help me. And I'm sorry, the Dutch are always out front. On They're sort of like, David, my, my amateur take is they're sort of like California. I see. The Dutch are like California. Help me here with where we are seriously, Professor Bowder, with neo-fascism and the neo, the things we don't want to talk about as we come up on these historic elections. What's your measurement of potential fascist tendencies in Europe? Yeah, I think it's, it's clear that uh, uh, much of the political uh, populist uh, movements have key elements, both in language and in both policies, of fascism, right? The call for uh, strong leaders, um, uh, extreme nationalism, nativism, uh, looking down on others, 
um, uh, seeing uh, the nation as humiliated by uh, the elite, by the establishment, um, looking for strong, preferably macho leaders. It, um, uh, racism, um, it's, it's all there. Um, and it is, uh, I think, extremely worrying. Last time Europe uh, began to flood with uh, fascism in the 1930s, they couldn't stop. And uh, I hope, uh, partly because we went through that, and I think that even Europeans are capable of learning, right, uh, that they will uh, pull back and not uh, take the last step towards uh, having an actual uh, de facto fascist uh, uh, regime in, in power in a significant European nation. But uh, it is something that we have to uh, beware of as a risk, yes. We looked at um, what happened to the UK as something that told us perhaps what might happen here in the US as you look ahead to the Dutch election next week. Is, is there any sort of uh, indicative value to it? Um, is the way that that election turns out going to tell us anything about what's going to happen in France or indeed what might happen in Italy? Not, uh, not really. It's, uh, it's very uh, country-specific. Yeah. Right? Uh, Builders, the leader of the Dutch populists, right, is in a way an establishment politician. He's been around in politics for 19 years, first as a member of the traditional conservatives and then uh, the last 10 years or so uh, as leader of his own party. And it's, I should say the only member of his own party, which is uh, a, a bit unique. Um, uh, I, I think that um, he, uh, his um, uh, you know, anti-immigrant, especially anti-Moroccan uh, rhetoric is so vitriolic, so vicious, his anti-Islam uh, rhetoric. <clears throat> let's close down all the mosques. All the mosques. Let's ban the Quran. Right? It's so extreme that uh, right. even many other populists in Europe uh, do not have anything to do right. with him. What an honor to speak to Jean-Claude Trichet yesterday and bust his chops about 17th century France economics and mercantilism. <laughs> as one does. And now yeah. to rip you apart as well on 17th century Dutch mercantilism as well. Explain to our audience what the Dutch and the French wrought a number of hundreds of years ago about mercantilism. What is it? Well, the Dutch were not really uh, mercantilists. They were merchants, right? They didn't believe that imports were a bad thing and that exports are a measure of virtue. Uh, so uh, they, in fact, created a trading empire that for the size of the country, which I think had two and a half people in it at the time, right. was quite almost a Portuguese standard. So I think the Dutch did trade right. The French uh, are basically uh, the precursors of Navarro. Yeah. Well, the precursor of Professor Navarro. Now, our audience knows that Mr. Navarro is advising his president. What is the element of Trump-Navarro economics that harkens back to the 17th century? Oh, uh, the the statement that um, uh, they believe that you help a country by restricting imports. Mm. One of the oldest insights dates from 1936, uh, Abba Lerner. Yeah. Our trade is that a tariff on imports is equivalent to a tax on exports. They both restrict trade. Right? So when you go after imports, you know, give or take um, you know, a small period of adjustment, right, you will be hurting exports as much as you hurt imports. You'll be hurting trade and um, basically the world and your country will be worse off. Of course, the gains from trade... Uh, are very unfairly distributed. And that is an issue, but that's a domestic right. political issue that has to be addressed by taxation and public spending, not by 
protectionism. David, jump into this academic treatise, folks. I'm going to put out Learner's Symmetry Theorem oh boy. with a major thank you to Jagdish Bhagwati of Columbia University <laughs> for driving it. For See, Bowder, right, we're scoring points with Bowder. He may come back. Can you come back next week on the Dutch, Dutch elections? I love we're gonna, oh, you're in America, yeah, good, good. wherever you are in the planet, we need you. We're honored to have I'll you back, yeah. on the Dutch elections. <laughs> but, David, pick up the seminar here. From the for, There's no math in this, the learner the, symmetry yeah, theorem. Very good. Continue. Uh, <laughs> we're hearing so much debate about this border-adjusted tax. I note that in your fiscal projections, you're, you're not factoring that in. What, right. Why is that? Uh, and how likely are we to see a tax reform without a border-adjusted well, tax? A uh, border-adjusted tax is simply uh, a switch of either value-added tax, which just doesn't have, or a profit tax from a tax base that taxes exports and exempts imports to one that taxes imports and exempts exports. Uh, and um, this prima facie looks like a you know, great way to stimulate exports and herd imports. And that's how certainly the importing and exporting industries have faced it. It's also likely to be viewed by the rest of the world as a hostile act. Mm. But learn asymmetry implies that this will be neutral that um, basically the tax-inclusive relative price of imports uh, uh, will uh, go up, but the tax-exclusive relative price of imports to exports will go down, and nothing real will be affected. It may take a while, but that's the story. Um, uh, The world doesn't believe this, and so it is very, very contentious. So far, there is no sign that uh, Mr. Trump has bought it. In fact, he complained about Mm. being too complicated. The one reason... I think that uh, myopic politicians like this, apart from benefiting exports and hurting imports, uh, is that um, it would be a short-run revenue windfall for the U.S. because imports need exports. So if you switch taxation from exports to imports, you're getting a windfall. Mm-hmm. About If you have a 20% corporate tax rate in the new regime, about 0.6% of GDP annually. Of course, since the U.S. is a debtor country externally, right, we expect that the present value of future exports has to be greater the present value of imports. The long run, it's a uh, revenue negative. But politicians don't do the long run. Feeling better. Great to see you here. Global Chief Economist at City. We'll have him back next week if we can, as, uh, as Tom was mentioning. We'll continue our lecture yes, on symmetry dynamics and novel learning. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. Jobs Day, Jim Glassman, Bill Gross to uh, be along. But always on Jobs Day, we try to corral the professor from Princeton, Alan Kruger, joins us, the former chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors. Like a magnet, Alan Kruger goes, where 96,000 were screaming just a few days ago. Barcelona, Spain, is, is the city still lit up over this football match, the greatest game supposedly in history? <laughs> It is, Tom. In fact, I had a little trouble checking into my hotel room uh, because people still are, are, yeah. are flocking to the city. You know, I, I, it's just extraordinary, folks. I thank you to the Telegraph for great coverage on something I don't understand. Paris Saint-Germain taking it on the nose. They add up the two games, David Gura. Is that right? They do one game and then they do another, add it up in Barcelona with a great victory. What's going to be the great victory here for Chair Yellen, Alan Kruger? Is it wage growth that's going to perfectly time with her rate rises? 
Well, you know, so far I think she's shown um, uh, remarkable perception in reading the economy. And uh, we are seeing inflation move to the 2% target. Unemployment rate, uh, I think, is pretty close to full employment. So the next, uh, next step would be wage growth uh, approaching 3% or a bit higher. You know, we haven't talked enough on this show about immigration policy, what the president has proposed, at least in broad strokes, and what that could mean uh, for the labor market. Have you and others begun to think about uh, that issue in particular here, that if we see uh, more people uh, asked to or forced to leave this country, if we see more restrictions placed on immigration, if we see, uh, Alan Kruger, a merit-based system, how that could affect the the contours of the U.S. labor market? Well, I think the... um proposal to build a wall and to restrict immigration to the U.S. is counterproductive for our economy. And, you know, we're going to face a worker shortage. Look at our demographics. Um, we want to raise our growth rate. I don't think the way to do it is by by restricting immigration. Uh, I think the impact of immigration on wages is actually uh, not all that great. The, the studies have found that uh, immigration doesn't have much of an effect on wages of natives. And immigrants come, they create demand. You know, it's not only an issue of supply. They also uh, buy, buy, buy goods and services. Uh, so I think the economy will shrink if we have uh, a sharp change in our immigration policy. How surprised were you by, uh, by all of the commentary last week from, from Fed policymakers? I wonder if, if, if we're any closer to getting some unanimity here on the fabled R-star, on that neutral rate. Are we, are we seeing more cohesion among Fed policymakers? Uh, I think so. You know, I think that um, the stars are aligning for for the Fed and that the economy has been improving at about the rate that they've been expecting the last year or two. Alan, help me here with the great debate, Mm. which is, are we fully employed? I mean, you've been in the absolute crucible. Did you ever sit on a couch in the Oval Office with your legs up on the couch? (laughs) Taking a selfie, right. Like, Like we've seen with the Trump administration. You never did that, right? No. (laughs) Okay. I just wanted to clear that up on a Friday before the jobs report. Are we fully employed? I I think, you know, we we are still affected by the Great Recession. And uh, I think there are two major developments in the economy over the last 10 years. One was the Great Recession. And then the other is the baby boom hitting retirement age. And labor force has been shrinking for both of those reasons, but mainly, I think, because of the aging of the population. And I think those who left the labor force because of the Great Recession, it's going to be very difficult right. to bring them back. Do you, do you know where the uh, neutral rate is? Uh, for the interest rate? For the Fed, the target rate. How many rate rises gets us to, new, gets us to neutrality? Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm going to plead that I'm not a monetary economist. There you go. Uh, oh, I, don't <laughs> uh, I, I, I don't know. I think that for the next year, the economy has kind of got momentum and maybe next year and a half. And after that, I'm not sure. Okay. So the question is kind of how many rate increases will we have by then? Uh, Professor Kruger, you were in the crucible of Obamacare. When the critics of Obamacare speak, how do you respond? I'm not saying you directly developed it, but you certainly were within the debate. How do you respond after watching the sausage get made? Well, you know, I, I think... Uh, the Affordable Care Act uh, has changed our country, uh, I think, for the better. Uh, I think uh, it means something different to be an American when we have universal health insurance. It's the same as Social Security now. And having 20 million-plus additional Americans have health insurance coverage, I think, is a major achievement. 
there's certainly parts of the Affordable Care Act that I think could have been designed better. Um, but I think it needs a scalpel rather than a meat cleaver in terms of trying to improve it. What makes this such a difficult issue to deal with? Uh, I was talking with the head of an insurance company yesterday who said that uh, politics often trumps thoughtful policy when it comes to to health care. There was a lot of criticism of the Affordable Care Act. The Democrats pushed it through very quickly. Of course, that was a nine-month process. Here we're seeing uh, this happen over the course of a, a matter of days. Why the reluctance to to take one's time with this uh, to try to get it right, to try to get it as right as possible? Right. Well, it didn't seem so fast when it was happening in 2009. It, it felt like, uh, especially on the Senate side, uh, that uh, Senator Baucus had been reaching out quite a bit to try to get bipartisan support. But health insurance, health care, is a very complicated issue. It's uh, almost one-fifth of the U.S. economy. Uh, whenever you have taxes and transfers, it's complicated. When you can uh, uh, change incentives in the health care system, which affect life and death, decisions, you know, obviously it's going to be controversial and, and should take time to make sure uh, that uh, we move in the right directions. What, what can we learn from the way this process is unfolding about how tax reform uh, might unfold on Capitol Hill? I'm curious, for your perspective here, uh, as an academic economist goes into government, watches this legislative process unfold, what you make of it, what you make of how this proceeds? Well, one lesson I learned is that as an academic, we shouldn't let the best be the enemy of the good. And if the political process is moving generally in the right direction, even if it's not what we consider to be optimal, uh, I think we should view that as success. And I think as, as academics, we tend to think of what's the ideal, what's the optimal, and not compromise from that. And in a political environment, you have to, have to make compromises. So that, that's one lesson that I took away. Uh, another is um, our corporate tax system is awful. There's so many uh, things we can do to improve it. Even if it's not ideal, it will be steps in the right direction. Um, but the politics are extremely complicated because you have so many interest groups well, involved. You, that that um, I, I think it'll take quite a while. Alan, you have the advantage at Princeton of one of our national treasures. Conservatives and liberals alike read everything Uwe Reinhardt writes on <laughs> on health care, and he, you know, he's predicted the collapse of Obamacare, et cetera. When, when you sit with Uwe Reinhardt in Lincoln Kruger, what I'm going to call reality economics, with Reinhardt's just grizzled incentives within the medical care system, what is the best outcome short of what is anathema to Americans, which is a national health care system? Uh, you know, I think uh, the exchanges are a step in the right direction. The exchanges were not controversial before they were put in place at a national level. States like Utah were moving towards exchanges uh, prior to the Affordable Care Act. So I think that there are areas where we can have consensus. And in the exchanges, you can pool risk. You can help uh, uh, entrepreneurs, individuals get the advantage of group rates, uh, also the advantage of kind of group bargaining, uh, more transparency. So I think that there are some steps like that where there should be universal support. Why don't just move back to the the jobs report that we're going to get today? Just look at the oh, data. Yeah. The, <laughs> oh, that. Uh, look at the, the the data. What we've gotten more broadly, it seems like the the, the soft data has been so strong. There's so much sentiment that's good uh, in the economy here in the U.S. and indeed in many in many parts of uh, of the of the world. When does the soft data begin to intersect with the, with the hard data? When are we going to see the sentiment influencing a pickup in hiring? Do you think? 
Uh, I think that um, the, the key question is what impact does it have on consumer spending mm. and consumption, as, as well as investment, but mostly for the U.S. economy consumption. And uh, confidence can increase, but if it doesn't translate into people taking more risk, um, uh, spending more, uh, taking chances, then uh, I don't think it's going to lead to a particularly faster pace of, of growth. Help me here with uh, something that we've talked about before, which is some of the experiments going on. And one of them in your wheelhouse, Professor, has been the rise in the minimum wage. What is your recent observation on what cities have done, I'm going to suggest leading the way to a higher minimum wage? What, what's the Kruger op- uh, observation of these many experiments? Well, we're in a situation uh, very much like where we were 20 years ago when the federal minimum wage lagged behind, and the states and the cities have have, uh, moved ahead of the federal government. And uh, so far, I don't think we're seeing the adverse – I don't think we're seeing adverse effects of it. Um, I do worry about a minimum wage of $15 at the federal level. Uh, On the other hand, I think $7.25 an hour is near a historical low. Uh, Donald Trump said during the campaign that he supported that $10 federal minimum wage. Uh, I haven't heard him say anything about it since then. Uh, I hope uh, when he has a labor secretary that he delivers on that promise. That seems to me like a reasonable compromise at a national level. And then the cities and states can go above that if if the uh, conditions weren't in those areas. Now, generous of you to be with us from Barcelona, Spain, uh, this morning. Alan Kruger. Alan, just be sure, Professor, that if you're in a bar, you love you love Barcelona football. Yeah, and think. enjoy the tapas. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the best yeah. outcome. On this job, say Alan Kruger with us with Princeton University. And- And joining us now on Bloomberg Radio, Bloomberg Television Worldwide, one William Gross of Janus Capital. Uh, Bill, I want to get to the bond market in a moment, but you wrote a scathing note, I thought, yesterday on Mr. Trump and Trump economics. I mean, it's morning in America. Who takes credit for this jobs report? President Obama, President Trump, or Bill Gross? Yeah. <laughs> well, if it was a bad report, uh, Trump would certainly dismiss it. Uh, but since it's a good report as part of his administration, I'm mm-hmm. sure he'll take credit for it. But, uh, you, you know, to, to think that these types of numbers, uh, 240,000 jobs created, will uh, continue it is a bit of a stretch to my way of thinking. Uh, the economy itself is only growing at 1.2%, according to the Atlanta uh, now yeah. uh, forecast, and then uh, that follows a paltry 2% that quarter before. So economic growth itself is, is not gangbusters. The jobs appear to be here, and wages are moving ahead decently. So all of those are good for the future, but uh, we shall see. It, uh, it, right. it, it's a situation where productivity determines growth, and uh, Trump has yet to put forth plans for productivity. Help us here with the managing of money and linking it into our day-to-day lives. Do we assume a Federal Reserve that is going to be in some form one or two or three and done? Or do you look at this as a measured Greenspan-like move of a many set of rising interest rates? Yeah, I, I think it's a mini set. I think the Fed or any central bank has to be careful in, in terms of where they move to. Uh, you know, the Fed has a, a target called R-star, which is the neutral 
real rate of interest or the neutral real uh, Fed funds rate. And, you know, it's assumed with 2% inflation that that uh, would be zero uh, on a real basis or 2% nominally. So the Fed uh, at the moment appears to be headed to 2% nominally, but it, it's a difficult uh, type of uh, calculation. No one really knows what the neutral rate of interest is in this uh, new normal uh, type of uh, e economy. Tom, I, I characterize what uh, Trump would hope for as the old usual, you know, 3 to 4% economic growth versus 2% uh, in the Obama administration, the new normal. If we can't uh, get to the old usual, then certainly uh, R-star and the neutral rate of interest has to be a little bit lower than uh, what uh, would mm -hmm. be assumed under a, a Trump assumption. Bill Gross, Mario Draghi, the president of the ECB, speaking yesterday, said there's not a sense of urgency in monetary policy. In light of what we saw today with these jobs numbers, in light of what we heard from Fed policymakers last week, uh, do you disagree with them? Do you think we are seeing a new sense of urgency among policymakers, at least in the U.S.? Well, certainly in the U.S., uh, you know, we've, we've seen some hikes. We're going to see some more. Um, you know, we've been helped in the United States, certainly by the ECB in terms of their quantitative easing, about $80 billion uh, a month. So we've helped, been helped by the BOJ, you know, to the tune of the same amount. And without those two central banks buying uh, their particular bonds and having those uh, funds flow back into the United States and into Treasuries, then I would think treasuries would be much higher. So what Draghi does is important. He did talk, you know, very neutrally back and forth as a two-handed economist would, you know, uh, in the past few days. And it, it's hard to know exactly when he begins to taper. Uh, but when the taper comes from uh, from Draghi, and I assume it would come before uh, Kuroda, um, then the the bull market in certainly in those countries you know, can, uh, can come to an end and perhaps in the United States as well. I've, I've said yeah. a 2.6% target for the Treasury. Uh, we're not there yet, but if that's exceeded, I would think it would be because, you know, Draghi and because Kuroda are uh, moving away from their own particular uh, maneuvers. Bloomberg Radio, Bloomberg Television Worldwide. Thrilled you with us worldwide this morning. A quick data check here. Futures up nine before the report. We're now futures up 12. The Dow advances up 95, putting Dow futures near 21,000. Not quite there. Uh, yields are higher. Bill Gross having a lousy morning. Yields up, price down. But, David, it does, it does begin to show the bounce here as now we move to March 15th. Now, Bill Gross, you, you referred to Janet Yellen as a modern-day Goldilocks uh, yesterday in your note, and I've been reading that story with my daughter, so let me torture the metaphor a little bit here. At the end of that story, uh, Goldilocks <laughs> escapes. She escapes with her life, and the bears get their porridge. How does all this end, do you think? Well, it uh, depends on your time frame. I, I, I think in the long run it ends badly uh, because central banks have created credit at an enormous rate. Uh, let's go back to 71, $1 trillion worth of credit, and now we have $65 trillion worth of credit. That's an enormous growth rate of 10 or 11 or 12 percent. Yeah. Same thing in China or, or even more. And so when you create credit, and when you create credit at uh, four times as much as you create one unit of GDP, 
then ultimately uh, the situation can't last. It doesn't mean it has to crash. It doesn't speak to Armageddon, but it does suggest that economies <clears throat> slow down once credit creation can no longer be sustained. And I think well, ultimately that's where we're headed. And Bill, this is important. Let's take let's expand out the timeline here as clearly you would like to do this morning. We've got rising rates. We have a new regime. Thank you, Jim Bullard, where the Fed is finally going to act. We have massive transatlantic divergences. Forget about the politics in Korea. The reality is you suggest the great distortion of low rates and low real rates will continue. How do our institutions get us back to normal if you've got financial repression going out many years? Well, I think it's very difficult, and that's what the Fed has to measure in terms of walking uh, the proverbial fine line. You know, when, when a, an economy is highly levered, as the U.S. is and the rest of the world is, uh, then uh, the Goldilocks um, metaphor where you can't be too hot or too cold, uh, as Janet Yellen uh, is, is doing, you know, comes into play. If interest rates are too high, like they were at five and a quarter percent uh, under the Bernanke Fed uh, way back when, then uh, subprimes and other housing-related uh, vehicles come crashing down, as well as related uh, leverage-related uh, types of vehicles. If they're too cold, as you mentioned, Tom, if they're too low, if they're financially repressed, then institutions like insurance companies, banks, pension funds, and the like, you know, can't really survive and pay for the liabilities that they've assumed. We're seeing that in Puerto Rico. We're seeing that in Illinois. We're seeing that in many spots in the United States. And so not too hot, not too cold. Right. It's a very fine line. And it uh, suggests to me that they can't uh, really raise rates too high or else um, you know, something happens. Well, Bill Gross, thank you so much for joining us. And to all of you on Bloomberg Television Worldwide for joining us this Jobs Day uh, here at 20 minutes uh, to the uh, hour. David Gurren, Tom Keene with Bill Gross of Janice. Let's get right to it uh, with Mr. Gross. Bill, it used to be an easier business. There were no Greek letters. You had a Monroe trader on your desk and you worried about convexity. You worried about duration. And I believe you worried about making money, getting the coupon, making total return. I'm going to suggest within your Janus portfolio right now, it's about not losing money. Tell our audience how to not lose money when rates go up and price goes down. Well, uh, it's a simple solution. It doesn't uh, say how much money you will make, uh, which would be um, scant because uh, you're, you're flushing into money market funds, which uh, you know yield 1% or less. But uh, the key to not losing money in a bear bond market when interest rates rise and uh, duration becomes a factor to the downside is uh, you lower your duration or you even go negative duration. You know, um, most total return funds, most bond funds actually follow uh, what's called the Barclays Aggregate Index, which yeah. has a duration of about five and a half years and an average maturity of seven. And so the, the key to not watching those bond prices decline is to not own them and to have a duration of right. zero or a, or a negative. So critically right now, Bill, if I go to the Bloomberg Barclays Lehman Brothers Gross Index, whatever you want to call <laughs> uh, the index through the permutations of 30 uh, years, if I go to the Bloomberg Barclays Index, I want to buy shorter maturity but where do I buy it? You've got a preponderance of British Columbia paper. Where in the world, you know, it sounds like Waldo, where in the <laughs> world, Bill, is the value in short duration paper? 
Well, I think there's some value in Argentina. You know, Argentina has some problems in terms of inflation, and Argentina has some recent problems in terms of uh, default or not defaulting. Uh, but their 90-day uh, bills, so to speak, yield 2 to 2.5 to 3%. It's a premium of 100 basis points or 150 basis points or so more. So, you know, you go to some you know, hopefully safe emerging market countries if you're willing to take that risk. Yeah, you also go uh, to a 12 to 18 month time frame in terms of corporate bonds, you know, yeah. double B, uh, triple B, the minus types of bonds which yield 1 1.8, 1.9, 2%. And those form the base of, of a Janus unconstrained portfolio upon which we layer, you know, derivatives that uh, put on some more yield. David, you're going to go out and buy Argentina paper this weekend, right? Yes, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Phil Gross, is there anything that would draw you to Europe? I was struck by what Mario Draghi said yesterday about the irrevocability of, of the euro. I wonder what you made of that comment uh, in particular, and if there's anything that's attractive across the Atlantic. Well, I don't, I don't think so. Um, you know, to my way of thinking, the negative yields in Germany, which partly reflects uh, the breakup or the potential breakup of the EU or the EZ uh, uh, and Germany leaving and uh, moving to a mark as opposed to a euro, there's a little bit of a, a safety premium there. But, you know, when you buy a, a five-year uh, German Abel at uh, a minus uh, 25 to 50 basis points, I can assure you, you're not going to make any money. So, you know, the, the German 10-year Bund at uh, 40, 45 basis points, you know, it's the same type of situation. So instead of buying them, uh, you want to short them. Uh, you want to take advantage of higher yields and uh, shorting the German market and shorting the other markets within Euroland is, is really key to total return in an unconstrained type of portfolio. Bill, in the time that we have left, and we could talk bond talk all day, but I think the nation is certainly riveted on uh, what we're seeing in Washington. What is your prescription for stability in Washington. I was talking with our Matthew Winkler the other day about the success of your California. California in adversity had a governmental system that was able to come out of it and do better than good as witnessed within their bond uh, market. What is the, the thing that Mr. Trump, President Trump and Washington can learn from the recovery of your California? Well, that innovation is the key to uh, to growth and productivity going forward. California is famous for that. It's not the only state, but the Silicon Valley and uh, areas we have here down south in terms of Irvine and uh, UCI are key to uh, to growth. California has been a key to growth for a long time. Um, so to, to learn from California is to innovate, is to invest, is to... Uh, expect that productivity instead of a half a percent will rise to one and a half to two percent, but it takes you know careful planning on the part of the private sector uh, and careful planning in, in terms of uh, investment going forward. We haven't seen investment from the private sector, and you know the mystery behind that would probably take five to ten minutes of discussion. But to my way of thinking, um, you know unless the California model is adopted, then. Uh, productivity at a half a percent and labor growth at a half a percent equals one to one and a half percent real growth and that's not the solution for the Trump administration. Bill Gross, is it easier to ignore the animal spirits endemic to Washington right now from Newport Beach? Have they made their way across uh, I-40 all the way to, to California? How do you ignore uh, all the enthusiasm, all the excitement that we're seeing in Washington if it's not based on something that you think uh, is going to lead to much progress? 
Yeah, I, I think it does help to be on the West Coast. It's helped for a long time, 30, 40, 50 years of uh, my experience to be out here as opposed to back in the bars uh, you know, just off of Wall Street. <laughs> I, I think um, <laughs> I, I, I think to know that uh, you know there's a lot of hype, uh, there's a lot of hope. There always is in a beginning administration in, in terms of uh, policies that will lead to growth. We're talking about regulatory policies or the lack of them, uh, the diminishing of them in the Trump administration. We're talking about lower taxes. We're talking about infrastructure. All of those things, you know, may be positives in the short term, but in the long term, it really depends on getting companies to invest. And yes, as Trump tried to do that by talking to individual companies and bringing labor back into the United States as opposed to outside. I think so, but that still doesn't speak to investment in plant and equipment as opposed to investment in labor, and that's the key going forward. I don't think he's addressed that problem as of yet. Uh, let's hope the president's listening here. He did just tweet out something uh, citing a Bloomberg News article about the, the jobs report. If he's not listening to the program right now, but what would you say to him uh, if you were one of those uh, executives invited into the Oval Office, into the Roosevelt Room to, to talk to him? What would you tell him about the, uh, the economy right now and what he should be doing? Well, I, I would tell him that, um, that in addition to capital, that uh, labor is a quite important component. Um, the, the, the labor situation in terms of um, universal income, and here's a stretch of an idea that's 5, 10, 15 years out, but um, labor's being displaced by technology, will continue to be displaced by technology. It's fine to have better jobs and better mm -hmm. training and to, to make humans into uh, robots, so to speak. But ultimately, universal income in some form or fashion is coming not just to Denmark, not just to Sweden, but to the United States. And I'd say yeah. uh, politicians in the United States have to prepare for it. Bill, one final question this morning. I assume President Trump or maybe even Secretary Mnuchin are listening. Advise them on the U.S. dollar. That's the president's worst nightmare. Do we get a brutal move in the dollar, or can it be a measured and manageable dollar strength? Well, I, I think it's been measured so far, Tom. It, it can't go too much further um, for two, two reasons, basically. A stronger dollar basically hurts U.S. exports, and a stronger dollar you know, hurts uh, emerging market countries that have taken out a lot of debt in dollar-denominated terms. And so if the dollar... Uh, in terms of the DXY went from, you know, 102 to 105, 6, 7, 8, then uh, the situation becomes not critical but becomes dicey in terms of the ability of emerging markets to repay over the long term and the ability of U.S. corporations to become competitive in terms of their exports. So you've got to watch the dollar and that means ultimately that the Fed can't raise interest rates yeah. too high or, or else the strong dollar will um, will do the reverse in terms of its uh, negatives as opposed to positives. Explaining there the second and third order movements mm. of certitude of the first order condition. Bill Gross, thank you so much with Janice Capital. I, I guess is the, the message from Bill Gross, David Gura, is the maximum Durations about two week paper. There you go. There you go. <laughs> Everybody's We're headed to Buenos Aires, I think, is the other message as well. It is so it is so hard, folks. For those of you that have never enjoyed uh, watching price go down within bond portfolios, I hate to report that this does occasionally occur. It is an immovable force, David, when it starts. Should we recap what we heard here this morning in terms of, uh, I think of we the should. data? Why not? Uh, again, we had this big beat. Uh, 235,000, the change in non-farm payrolls in February and the unemployment rate here at 4.7%. Wage growth, paying such close attention to that. Average hourly earnings, the survey was 0.3%, came in at 
at 2%, so uh, slightly yeah. lower, but still in line, I think, with expectations. Very good. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of Global Connections, Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.